0: Your credit score impacts your ability to buy a home more than you know. In today's episode, we're going to walk you through how your credit impacts the home buying process. And we're also going to walk you through how to boost your credit score. There's a lot of home buyers out there that have imperfect credit and don't realize how much raising their score would actually. Put them in a better position to buy a home. We're going to walk you through that along with giving you some examples of what it looks like with various credit scores and interest rates and how that affects your monthly payment. This is the Educated Home Buyer with Jeb Smith and Josh Lewis. So, Josh, let's start today's conversation by talking about why credit is important because it impacts everything, not just buying a home. It impacts your ability to go out and buy a car, get a credit card, rent an apartment. Everything you do in your life essentially is impacted by your credit score. So let's start there and dive into it. We're a show about mortgages
1: and home buying, so we're gonna focus on that, but we're gonna talk about uh, the credit cards, we're gonna talk about the auto loans, other consumer loans, because it all impacts affordability. We see the headlines all the time, hey, affordability is at record lows, affordability is at 40-year lows, but no one can afford to buy a home. Well, if you have a lower credit score, it's gonna impact you all along the way. So let's look at that first example that we have here, Jeb. $500,000 loan. Now, some areas that's high, some areas that's low, good midpoint to start looking at. Now, if you have a score under 700, it starts impacting your decision of what type of loan you're going to get. So not only is the lower that score is, you are going to get worse terms on your loan, but you may not have the option of a conventional loan. You may get forced to an FHA loan. If you're looking at, say, something like a USDA loan, you may not be able to get the automated approval at all, so it starts enforcing decisions on you above and beyond just the cost of credit. So we have that example here at five hundred thousand. If you were doing an FHA loan, if you have a six hundred twenty credit score, you're going to get a six and a half percent interest rate. If you have a seven hundred forty score, you're going to get a six and an eighth. So when we look at that, that's a thirty difference between a thirty one sixty payment and a three thousand thirty eight. So one hundred twenty two dollars difference month. Now, that exaggerates a little bit because for FHA, for the most part, you got to get above 680 to get that best term. And that 620 score, we need to get you above 640 to get pretty close to it. So it shows a three-eighths difference for something that's only really a 60 or 70-point difference in credit scores. That's why we're talking today about what you can do to pump it up. Now, we have a lot of people that say, I don't want an FHA loan. I don't want to pay an upfront mortgage insurance premium. I want to do a conventional loan. So we look at conventional with 5% down as of earlier this week with zero points. a 640 credit score, Jeb, 7.75% versus the 780 credit score that now that is our highest tier for conventional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans. That was a 6.875 with zero points. You go, wow, that is a huge difference. There's almost a full percent difference on a $500,000 loan. It makes a significant difference in the monthly payment, but or again, most of the folks that watch the show here, they're doing 3%, 5%, 10% down. We'll get the occasional 20%, 25% down. But the majority of, of people here are putting less than, than 20%. So they're looking at mortgage insurance. The mortgage insurance for a 640 FICO with two borrowers is 1.19%. That 780 credit score, it's 0.21%. So it's yet another 1% difference there between those two. So the difference in the monthly payment is the difference between $3,582 for principal interest and mortgage insurance or $3,284 for principal interest and mortgage insurance. It's a $300 difference. So you start to see why we say that person with a 640 credit score, they're never going to do that conventional loan. The decision has been made for them. It pushes them to FHA, which FHA is still a very good loan program. It's great to have that option, Mm -hmm. but it starts making decisions for you in pushing you in different directions versus you having all
0: of the options available to you. And either one of those options, you're paying a premium for your payment. We haven't even talked about the idea of compensating factors and credit score being one of them, right? In some of those situations when you have the higher DTIs and you know, you're not necessarily getting the automated approval, it goes into manual underwrite and credit score is one of the things they look at. The higher your credit score, the better of a candidate you are to the lender offering a loan, especially when you start looking at those low credit scores. We often have people, Josh, say, well, I meet the minimum credit score requirement. So therefore, I should be able to get the loan. Yeah, maybe that's the case. But oftentimes, it, it would be in your best interest to probably spend a little bit more time improving your credit score because not only is that credit score going to offer you a better rate and in turn a lower monthly payment, but it's also depending on how high you can get that credit score, It's going to impact your debt to income ratio in a way that allows you to maybe qualify for more home. It could be the difference in you getting above that threshold for finding the property that, you know, you really want and like versus the one that eh, doesn't really check all the boxes. So you talked about manual underwriting. If you can't get an
1: automated approval, you can do a manual underwrite, but more restrictive in terms of the guidelines. But let's talk about an automated underwrite. People will always say, well, I understand you can go up to a 50% debt to income ratio on conventional loan and you need a 620 credit score. I got a 625. I want to go conventional and I think I'm at 49.9. Well, in the real world, you're not going to get an automated approval because it is a black box and it may want you under 45. I've seen situations where it wants you even less than that if it will give you an approval at all. Mm -hmm. So any of these things are doing multiple things. If you're paying a higher rate, higher mortgage insurance, your debt-to-income is already higher. You are less likely to get approved at that higher debt-to-income ratio, so you are qualifying for less relative to you, the same person, otherwise, with just a higher credit score. Now, Jeb, let's talk about this a little bit. Most of my clients that come through, they have an auto loan, they have an auto lease. So in terms of that, we're looking at a big, big difference. We've got a chart here in front of us. Subprime is considered under 600. So if we look at that, if someone has that 600 credit score and they're saying, hey, I can qualify for FHA at 580 on their auto, the average rate on a new car is 11.86. So for a $20,000 auto loan, that's a $439 payment. The person that comes in with the 780 credit score is paying 5.61% right now, $381. It's only a $58 difference, but we're realizing affordability is strained all the way across. So if you have an auto loan, you're paying more on that as well. Now, if we do the same thing on credit cards. Credit card they go through those same tiers. If you got a subprime score in that 600, 620 range, you're at a 20.2% interest rate on your credit card, whereas that 780 borrower is somewhere 13, 14, 15% right now. And those have been trending up, so those, those may be out of date. Both may be higher. But if you're just talking about your interest payments, not the minimum payment, on a $10,000 balance, you're talking $168 a month just to tread water for the person with a 600 credit score versus $130 for the person with the better score. And remember that a big reason, which we're going to go into, that those folks have lower credit scores is they're carrying more debt. So instead of $10,000, maybe it's fifteen dollars or $20,000. So all of those things, the higher car payment, the higher credit card payment, all of those things add up and you're going to have a higher mortgage payment and qualify at a lower debt to income ratio. It's not like a scarlet letter that if you have a 620 credit score, you're a bad person. I I have people all the time, they tell me, hey, my parents are first generation here in the US. They had never used credit before. They didn't teach us anything. I was lucky, I went to, to college and I show up on campus and they throw four credit cards at me. So I'm dumb, I'm paying for what I did when I was 20. I know this now. So really what we're going to talk about today, Jeb, is someone who said, I've achieved a a place in my life where I have stability, I I want a home, I can afford it in terms of the monthly payment. My credit score isn't where it is, and I want to do this in the next month, the next three months. What can I do to improve my credit score rapidly? We did two episodes about 12, 24 months ago, Mm -hmm. Jeb, where we go deep, deep, deep on everything you would ever want to know about credit scoring and what you can do. Today, what we really want to focus on is what can you do in a short time frame to maximize that credit score? And even if you can't get to a 780, Jeb, that 620 person getting over 640, much better, more options. The 650 borrower getting above 680, much better options. The 700 credit score getting to 740, you may say, hey, it's not worth it. I can't make a a big difference. But hitting those little tiers are going to be really critical. And and I think that you're all going to see today that there are some things that you can do to impact your score to the tune of 30, 50, 80 points within a, a 30 to 90 day period.
0: I often say on other videos josh that credit is the most important piece when it comes to buying a home it's more important than down payment just because it impacts that interest rate more so than down payment in many ways and oftentimes it might make more sense to put less money down use some of that remainder that you would have put down and pay down some of these balances pay off collection accounts and some of the things that we're going to talk about here in a minute to boost your score because ultimately it's going to put you in a better position and probably get you a lower monthly payment than putting that money down to begin with. Now, I realize there's interest and other things that come up long-term with that, but the reality is most people live in the payment, right? What they're paying every single month, and that's what we're going to focus on. How do you improve the monthly payment? How do you improve your qualifications to be able to maximize and get the most bang for your buck when you're trying to buy a house? And so, Josh, part of that is understanding credit as a whole. Credits made up of of four, five, six different factors here. One of the things we're gonna talk about is the ability to make your payments on time. That's one of the things they're looking at. They're looking at utilization. They're looking at different types of credit that you have there. They're looking at inquiries. Are you going out and trying to pull credit from a lot of different places? That's another factor that they're looking at. And I'm sure there's something I'm leaving out here, but let's start with utilization because I think 30, 35% of what the bureaus look at is utilization, which is probably impacting more people than anything else. Well, Jeff, we talked about automated underwriting being a black box. You don't know exactly
1: what goes into it. Credit scoring is a little bit of a black box, but the information's out there and it's been reverse engineered to a degree. And the part that is best understood is credit utilization. And it's also the easiest to manipulate. And what do I mean by manipulate? I can change it. I can change it tomorrow. You talked about the borrower that wants to do a 20% down, but they've got $40,000 on credit cards. Well, let's do a 5% down and take the other 15% and eliminate their, their credit card. So when we look at that, there are some thresholds that you want to hit. So in a perfect world, you do not want to have a zero balance because a zero balance looks like it's just a card you're not using. The model can't tell is this person good at using credit or are they just so afraid of it that they avoid it? So you want a little balance up to 10%, but stay under. So 9.9%, 0.1 to 9.9% is your ideal. And a lot of people hear that and they go, well, that's ridiculous. I just carry more debt than that. Or I have something I'm having to pay off. I had to have a surgery last year and there's $12,000 on a credit card. I need to pay it down. Totally get that. But that's our ideal. That's our perfect world. That doesn't mean if we don't get to it that we give up on it. The next tier is from 10% all the way up to 29.9%. So now we can triple that balance and we're still in what's considered good use of credit, and the model is going to give you a good credit score. Now, Jeb, I personally have some insight into this. We had a crazy December. We talked a few months back that you had both vehicles needed tires. Both of my vehicles needed tires within a 30-day timeframe. I had a little medical procedure that had to go on a credit card, and then there was something else that we put on there. So, the credit card went from always under that 10% up to over 30%, and it was literally a 40 point hit. Score's still good, but it was a 40 point hit. And the only thing that happened is that one card went from $1,000, $1,500 balance to a $13,000 balance. So that is important, but the score was still good because it still stayed in in that range. So just to give you the rest of the tiers, 30 to 49% will still work. When we go to 50 to 75, you're gonna start seeing a pretty significant hit to your score. And if you get above 75%,
0: it's hitting you in a big, big way. Let's talk about what you're talking about here, Josh, in in layman terms. So when we're talking these percentages, we're talking about how much you actually have on that card, not the minimum payment, the balance that you have versus what the limit is on that card. So your credit report, many people might not know this, actually shows your limit. So if you have a credit card that has a $20,000 limit on it, it's going to say $20,000 or or a number similar to that on your credit report. And then it's going to show you what your balance is. And if your balance is $10,000, in this example, you're using 50%. So that's a 50% utilization of that credit card. What Josh is saying in our example here, the ideal numbers, if you have that $20,000 limit that you're spending no more than $2,000, you're at $1999 on that card. Now, for most people, again, it's not realistic because they use their cards for different things. Me personally, I have a card that has a balance that I pay off every single month. And many times. That card is over 30, 40, 50% of what the limit is, but I'm using it and I'm actively paying it off. And so depending on where it reports on any given month, that can impact my score in a negative way and bring my score down. So it's important to know when you update these things, when you pay these things, they don't immediately impact your credit score that day. So if you pay down your credit card balance today, right, under that 10% or whatever, you're trying to improve your score, which we'll talk about, It's going to take a little bit of time for the credit bureaus to update that. And we'll talk about a rapid rescore and that sort of thing, Josh. But the credit utilization parts, 30, 35% of your credit score. Is that right?
1: Yes. And it's for each individual line. So let's say I have three credit cards with $10,000 limits on it. And I have zero balances on two of them. And I've got a $3,000 balance on the other one. Well, I owe $3,000 on $30,000 of limit. So they run that cumulative number of how much available credit I have to myself. But then that one line is going to be at 30%. So that wouldn't be as good as if I had $1,000 on each one. So kind of important to know Mm -hmm. there are some tricks in here because you may be watching saying, well, hey, Jeb and Josh, I'm not the person that has 20% sitting there where I have this extra money. I have just enough to get into my house. So what can I possibly do? One of the easy buttons on this, if you have a good score where the creditor, you've been with them for a while, you make your payments on time, but maybe the score is 685. It's 705 and you want it to get higher and you're at like 50% of your utilization. So say you owe 5,000 on a $10,000 limit. If they'll increase your limit to 12,000 or 15,000, we're bringing that percentage down. You didn't do anything. If anything, you actually, to me, you're a worse risk to the creditor because now you have more credit available to you, but they're looking at it and saying, well, that person uses less of the available credit. That's one way to do it. Another option is to consider a consolidation loan. So consolidation loans of many types. I talked to a borrower yesterday, actually a listener to the podcast. He'll probably be listening to this. It was interesting in two ways. One was that he has student loans. 21 separate accounts, because if you've been through the student loan process, you borrow each semester, each quarter, whatever it is. So you end up with a bunch of loans and he hadn't gone back and consolidated that can have a positive impact because now it shows 20 accounts that you successfully paid. And then the one new account that obviously it's a much higher limit, but that's an installment debt. It's not revolving like a credit card. So we don't get into that credit utilization issue. So we had that issue, but for him, the other thing, They have a financial advisor. Financial advisor says, you guys don't use your credit at all. You need to start using it. He only has one credit card and it's an old one that he got when he was in college with a $1,200 limit. So they go, okay, he's right. We need to use our credit so that hopefully the scoring model will see it. Well, they went out and charged like five or $600 of just living expenses, not additional things, but living expenses. Mm -hmm. They were over 50%. So they went from like a 725 to a 690 financial advisor gave him the right advice, but didn't say, Hey. Just put your cell phone bill on it every month. Put your Netflix on it or something so that there is a balance. We don't want it at zero, but there is a balance there every month. So important things to know. So that consolidation could be consolidating student loans, but we see a, an even bigger impact when it's revolving debt because installment debt is just looked at a little more friendly as revolving debt. So if you have three credit cards that are all at 90% uh, uh, utilization and you owe $5,000, a new $15,000 consolidation will likely have a lower interest rate than those, those uh, credit cards. But once that hits and cycles through and we get the credit cards down, Now we're gonna see a boost to the score. So again, it doesn't require you having any cash. It requires having a score good enough that when the consolidation loan companies will help you with that. And obviously here, Jeb, the thing that's important with that is, please, please, please do not go out and take a consolidation loan and go, awesome. Now I have my credit cards to spend on again, because you put yourself into a significantly worse position than just saying, oh, I've got a 650 credit score. I need to go FHA. Now you're like, I got a 620 credit score. I'm getting terrible terms on an FHA and I may not qualify.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to tell the listener something that they probably already know, but it's something I want to point out. You need to make your payments on time. That's really easy to understand, but most people don't understand when I say on time, there's actually a grace period. So when you have a credit card that's due, you have a mortgage payment that's due, you have something that's due, there's typically a grace period before it reports on your credit report, and that, and that number's 30 days. So nothing actually shows up on your credit report negatively until you haven't made that payment for at least 30 days. And so I've heard people say, well, I didn't pay it on on the due date and I already know it's late, therefore, what does it matter? I'll just wait till next month. By doing that, you could put yourself in a position where you pass that 30-day mark and end up getting a negative mark on your credit report for that line of credit, which is going to have a huge impact on your score. So when we say that the utilization is a big part of your credit score, the other is making your payments on time consistently over time. That's something the bureaus look at. They don't want these 30-day lates. They don't want 60s. They don't want 90s. So even if you're a couple of days late on stuff, try to make that payment and keep moving forward. Don't get with the mindset that, hey, I'm late. I'll just figure it out later and deal with it. It's already impacting my credit because in many ways it hasn't. And so you want to avoid that because those things are more difficult to clean up than anything that you're going to see on your credit report and ultimately a headache and probably going to become a larger issue when it comes to buying a home. But Josh talked about utilization being a big part. Another big thing that people can do is having available credit. Like we said, the utilization piece, but by doing it in a different way. And by that, I mean, becoming an authorized user on someone's account. So Say, for example, you have a father, a mother, someone in your family that has good credit. And I stress somebody that has good credit. You don't want to become an authorized user on somebody's account that doesn't have good credit, that's missed payments. So you really want to focus here on the people that are doing a good job, good credit scores, making their payments on time, and not really using those cards. Or if they're using them, they're using them in the right way. Because... What you can do is become an authorized user on that account. Now, obviously, they have to be a part of this and allow you to do this. But by doing that, what happens is you essentially get their credit history reporting on your account, assuming they've made their payments on time. They have a history with that um, particular credit line that can impact your score in, in a really positive way. And I say for those out there that just don't have credit, this is a really good tool to start with building that credit because it will impact your score in a positive way. Now, Josh, I'm sure you have some examples of this and uh, more history with it since you're dealing with it more often. So. I'll throw it your way. Well, in a perfect world, it's helpful, but I will say this. It has the potential to cut both ways. You gave
1: that caveat that it has to be someone that has a beneficial credit history. Because what I'll tell you is probably once every couple of years, I have someone, we pull their credit, we're looking through and like, perfect credit. Why is this one account suck? It's got two or three lates in the last 24 months. And you look and they're just an authorized user on it. So the good news is, in that situation, let's say you are an authorized user, the person who authorized you to use their card doesn't have a good payment history, has that card maxed, we can remove you as an authorized user, do that rapid rescore, and get that improved. So sometimes removing you as an authorized user is the move, but in terms of adding you as an authorized user, it can impact multiple categories of things that improve. So in a perfect world, if we're going out and we want the ideal person adding you as an authorized user, and it's important to know they don't have to have any type of relationship with you. It could be a friend doesn't have to be family doesn't have to be anything anyone that is willing to add you as an authorized user and risk you being able to go out and use their credit will be eligible lender doesn't have any distinctions on that they don't even know from the credit report who you have been authorized to use their card but when we look at it it can add a longer time frame so that's one of the factors how long of credit have you had so maybe you're 25 and looking to buy a house and you don't really have much credit or any at all but your grandma who has a credit card back to 1978, can add you as an authorized user, you get that 40 something years of, of history. So there's that benefit. It can be a, a mix. Let's say that I have one credit card and one auto loan, because I'm young, I don't have a whole lot of credit. And that's good to be conservative that way. But adding another revolving account in there, now we've added multiple lines of credit in addition to that history. And what we're obviously hoping here is that their utilization is going to help you. A lot of times, like, Jeb, this is insane. This is my business credit card, but we got the business card a few years ago and it was uh, like an $18,000 limit. I looked at the the, uh, statement the other day. I have never asked for an increase on that limit. It is a $73,000 credit card limit. Yeah, baby. They do that for people who have had a card for a long, long time and made the payments on time. So they give it to people that don't need it. But if grandma with her 1978 card has a $23,000 limit and she charges a hundred dollars on it a month, that's gonna be awesome. Because it shows a bunch more available credit with very low usage and utilization yeah. on the flip side if grandma is the one that's on qvc all day and she's got a seven thousand dollar limit and it's at seventy eight hundred dollars because she has boxes showing up on her door from qvc that's going to be problematic and not helpful for you even if she always makes her payments on time
0: well josh you keep mentioning grandma and along with that you mentioned 1978 i was born in 80 and then you threw out 40 plus years Dude, I think of 1980, and I think that was not that long ago. You're like, I feel like you're poking the bear over here because you keep mentioning grandma, and it keeps reminding me how old I am. But with that, Josh, let's talk about inaccurate information, collection accounts, that sort of thing, because I think there is a huge misconception around collection accounts, what needs to be paid, what should be paid, how that impacts your credit score, just a lot of different things. And in fact, we could probably do an entire episode on it, but let's kind of highlight some things here. Do you need to pay off all your collection accounts? Do paying off collection accounts actually improve your score every time? I think that's kind of the highlights here that we should touch on.
1: So the risk in paying off a collection, if it's not required over the long haul, a paid collection will reflect better on your credit history and lead to a better credit score. In the short run and again for today's show we're talking about we want to buy in 30 60 90 days in the short run if you have a collection from 2018 and doing the math for you jeb that's five plus years ago back in 20 doesn't feel days that long of ago 20, dude. of 2018 if you had a collection in 2018 it shows hey jeb had a problem five plus years ago if he rolls in and pays that thing off cool it's now a zero balance collection but it will show date of last activity as of yesterday so it looks like recent bad activity instead of five year ago bad activity so i always tell people if the lender is not requiring you to pay off collections and most times it's going to be dictated by the automated underwriting system it is very rare that we have to pay collections and they need to be a very large amount so like with fha anything less than two thousand dollars of collections in total we don't need to pay off if it goes above that we don't have to pay them off, but we have to account for a payment. So we use 5% of the total aggregate balance of those collections. So it can impact your qualifications. So you might get to a situation where you need to pay those collections, but be very, very careful and consult very closely with your mortgage originator on whether you should or should not do that. Now, Jeb, a unique subset of that is any creditor that will offer you a pay for deletion you pay them in full, they just want their money and they'll give you a letter just making that collection disappear. That is always going to be a positive. So we have a special type of, of loan now that you don't even need them to agree to the deletion anymore. Paid medical collections as of 2023, no longer report. So I have a client right now that he has two decent decent-sized, like a $1,700 and a $1,800 medical collections, like $3,500. That's significant for him to pay but we can make it disappear and boost his score significantly. I had another person that had something happened and there was like four or five little medical collections and then two bigger ones. They couldn't pay off the big ones. But I said, if we get rid of the three or four that add up to 400 bucks, they disappear. Your score is going to look better with two collections than with six or seven collections. So medical is a specific subset. You will have a lot of collection agencies that tell you, oh, by law, we can't delete. That is accurate. You didn't pay this. It went to collections. But there are some that will do it. So if you don't ask, the answer is always no. So if you have any collections and you're considering paying them, you may want to reach out and say, will you do a pay for deletion? Because if we delete that, it will have a nice boost to your credit score.
0: And and along with that, guys, don't go on Google and search credit repair and don't search YouTube for credit repair. Because what you're going to get is a lot of for-profit companies that a lot of them have no idea what they're doing and what they tell you is going to happen. Sometimes they can get things removed that will later pop back up on your credit. You've paid them a large amount of money to do it. So a lot of the things that we're talking about here today, guys, you can do yourself. You don't need to pay somebody to do it. And there are reputable companies out there that will guide you through this process that don't charge absorbent fees, some large upfront fee to guide you through that process. So just make sure you're doing your research. You're not just getting online because a lot of people pay to be where they are in these search results and it can impact you negatively and you can end up spending more money that you could have used to help improve your score by paying them and so little tangent there, but it's super important. It is very important because you can do all of these things.
1: And we talk on the show here that it's never too early to consult uh, a loan officer and get that pre-approval going. We can consult with you through this process. And most times, 70, 80% of the time, we can come up with a game plan and a game plan that you're comfortable executing. That being said, had a listener to the show reach out this last week. She had some significant stuff there and we went through it and it was something she probably could have handled on her own but we did connect her with a company that repairs credit because she didn't have the time and energy and knowledge and expertise to do the volume of stuff there so you're 100 percent correct that anything we're talking about you are capable of doing it doesn't require one of those companies but you may decide that that is in your best interest just in terms of time effort and energy
0: and if your loan officer is not able to have that conversation in detail with you maybe find somebody that is. Most people that have been in the business for an extended period of time have some knowledge of how credit works. They have models that can tell them by doing certain things, it will improve your score. And we'll talk about that rapid rescore here in a minute, Josh, but you know, just make sure they're professional, right? And if you need one of those people, You wanna get connected with Josh, there's a referral link in the description of this video that will get you connected with somebody that actually understands credit. And none of these guys are benefiting from it. They're only benefiting by getting you into a loan and you buying a house. They're not getting anything from the credit side. So make sure you use that referral link. But Josh, let's talk about one other thing. If you're somebody that has no credit, you're trying to build the credit. We talked about the authorized user thing. You mentioned paying some of these bills on your credit card to help build credit if you don't have a balance on them. Some other things you can do now, You can add rent, you can add cell phone payments, you can add a history of some of these other accounts that you're making every single month. They don't typically report on your credit report because of just how credit works. You can now get them to report on your credit report, which in turn will help you build a score and ultimately should impact you in a positive way. Do you have any experience with that let's differentiate jeb everyone has seen the commercials for
1: experian boost this is essentially what experian boost does you can provide them access to things that you are paying every month that do not show up on your credit and they will add it there and it'll say self-reported the problem with it is only experian does that so on the mortgage side we pull all three bureaus and we're going to use the median score so maybe it shoots your experience up 100 points and nothing else increases. So the things that you're talking about are truly third-party companies that you can provide the evidence of what you've paid and they will report to the bureaus. There's generally a fee for this. I don't necessarily see any downside to it, um, but don't have great experience with it. We're almost relying on their promise that, hey, if we do this, you're going to have a greater depth of credit. Now, what I can say, Jeb, some of the things that are going into this Fannie and Freddie have built into their automated underwriting systems ways to incorporate a 12-month evidence of rental history, and it can offset some other things and make it more likely for someone with a low credit score to be approved. So I don't have strong feelings about it. I don't have a lot of experience with it. It just doesn't come across a lot where I could tell you, hey, I had a client who did this and it helped them a lot. So if you're one of those, if you've done this and seen a nice improvement to your score, we'd love to to hear from you. Yeah, comment on the video. Let us know.
0: That's very helpful. Josh. Rapid Rescore is the last thing we're going to talk about. One misconception, a lot of people are looking at their credit score on their American Express account. They log in, pay their American Express bill. There's a number that says, hey, do you want to see your credit score? And you click it and it says, Jeb, your credit score is 800. Is that my credit score that you're going to use to buy a home? It's usually a Vantage score, which we can't use on this side. If it is a FICO score, FICO has like
1: 30 different models. So the thing that I recommend, whether you do Credit Karma, whether you do monitoring through Experian, just know that all of those companies are trying to sell you stuff. With that being said, I use Experian and I do their premium service that gives you access to all three bureaus. And I can tell you that from a really good score, high seven hundreds, I was able to kind of follow the advice and do the things they said and get it in an 18 month period where it's consistently at 850. And it would be high, but it wouldn't be that high if I hadn't done that. And we talked at the top of the show, that filters through into everything, whether you have to make a deposit for your utilities, just a million things, the higher you can get it, the better off you're going to be. So I recommend Experian. And one of the things in there is that they allow you to do is They'll show you like 10 or 15 different FICO models and how it varies. So it's important to know that the lower your credit score is, the more likely the free credit scores you're getting are to overstate it and to overstate it to a greater degree. If someone tells me they got an 800 credit score and they say they got it off their credit card, they're probably going to have really close to an 800 credit score. If someone tells me they have a 640 credit score, they got it off their credit card or they got it off a credit card. I can tell them, I'm sorry, we're not going to have a 640. It's going to be 610, 615, 625, but it's going to be shy of that. So it's an important thing to note.
0: All right. Rapid Rescore, important piece of the puzzle when it comes to working with a lender and boosting your credit score. So Josh, brief overview. How does a Rapid Rescore work? How does it improve scores? How does it help borrowers? Let's use that example of my guy that has the two medical collections
1: and he wants to pay them off because he knows those will disappear. So he calls, makes the payment and gets the receipt. We can sit there and we can wait for that 30 day billing cycle and pull credit after that, but he doesn't want to wait. He found a property. He's ready to write an offer. So what we need to do with that is go to the bureau and do what's called a rapid rescore. We have to provide specific documentation It has to have your full name, the account number, and it has to have a contact where, The creditor will verify when Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax reach out and ask, hey, is this really a zero balance? Was this paid off on this date? Now, boom, they immediately go in, and we don't have to wait for 30 days, 40 days for that to reflect on your credit report. They make that change. They ping us back and say, cool, you can go pull a new credit report. Now, this goes back to the conversation we've had a few times here. Credit reports are absurdly expensive nowadays. Lenders still don't want to charge you for them up front, but if the pace keeps going like this, it's it's going to get to that point where you're going to have to pay for your credit report up front. But why I even bring that up is, whereas an individual credit report was $40 for us two years ago, it almost doubled last year. It went up again this year. It's over $100. So we pulled one credit report. Whether we do the rescore or we wait 45, 60 days, we have another credit report. Now we got $200 of credit report. The rescores, you pay... Per trade line, per bureau. So those two medical collections for that client, if they report to all three bureaus, and we don't know which one's going to have the highest score, so we want to maximize all of them. We got two trade lines, three bureaus, six accounts. Maybe forty to fifty dollars, depending on the credit bureau. So we got two hundred and fifty dollars of rapid rescores plus $200 of credit reports. And by the way, you're not allowed to be charged for any of this because the government says, well, we're just correcting inaccuracies in your credit report. So I, as a loan officer can pick up that cost for you and I'm happy to do it because it it makes deals possible. It gets people much better terms. Would I eat a $450 charge so that you will have a $180 lower monthly payment for the life of your loan? Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So it's important that you're dealing with someone that knows how to look at your credit report, knows how to use the what-if tools that will tell us, hey, you've told me you can do X, Y, and Z. If we do that, what is the improvement we're going to get? Quantify what that means for you in terms of loan options, in terms of monthly payments, and then say, okay, here's our plan on how we're going to execute that. So it is important to remember that in the context of this, if you can do any of the things that we talked about, to improve your score, and you've done the, the legwork with your loan officer up front to say, if we do them, it's going to get us this, we can have this all done in a week. It's about four to five days for the rapid rescore. And it's generally a day or two for the client to get back to the creditor and either make the payment to, to pay the credit card balance down and get the evidence or pay off the collection and get the evidence. If it's a, a standard collection and we're getting a deletion, we need that letter. I didn't talk about that when we are talking about pay for deletion. If you have a creditor and they agree for the deletion don't ever pay them before you get in writing that they will delete for payment in full and what the payment is and what the timeline is Yeah, because i have had people say hey they'll delete cool and they go and make the payment and they go oh yeah no no we never said we would delete so All of that is important and it's important to work with someone who can guide you, walk you through this. Because I would say probably one in four, one in five clients, do we do this? And it's not just people that, hey, I got a 580, I got to get to a 640 to get good FHA terms. We do this a lot with people with a 695 and we want to get them to a 740 Mm -hmm. because it's going to improve their terms or save them a half of a point on a $700,000 loan. Oftentimes, Jeb, Paying a $1,000 medical collection will result in a $3,500 lower closing costs. We see those types of things where it's almost free money to clean up some of these things.
0: And it's important. So if you support the, the, the content that we do here, do us a favor, hit that thumbs up. Not only does it help the YouTube algorithm push it out to more people like you, it also shows us that you like what we're doing here. And if you like this information and you want to stay updated on everything around real estate to become the educated home buyer, do us a favor and hit that subscribe button. So, Josh, we've talked about credit. If people want a more in-depth view of credit, kind of just digging through the weeds, we'll link to the other episodes that we did on credit in the description below. But I think just stressing how important credit is, how it impacts everything, not just home buying guys, you can be a renter and still benefit from improving your credit score. And that's really what we're trying to stress here today. So Josh, throw it your way to take us out. Manage your credit on a daily basis.
1: Don't put it off until you need a new car, until you wanna buy a house, until you're going to get married and your soon-to-be spouse wants to compare credit reports before we do this. Manage it on a daily basis. Use one of the monitoring systems. Remember, whether it's Credit Karma, Experian, they're there to sell you anything and everything. I get emails four times a week of experience trying to sell me crap, but it is still a a very good tool for managing and optimizing your score, no matter how much you know about this. As Jeb said, it trickles through to everything you do in life, and it just feels good to have a a maximized credit score, whatever that is for you. So manage it daily, do your best, keep it as high as you can. It will trickle through to everything you do financially in life.
0: And lastly, buy right, borrow smart, build wealth. See you next time. Adios, amigos. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.